Welcome to the Social Change Podcast, the podcast for agents of change. And now your host, Matt Needham. Welcome to episode four of the Social Change Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Edward Lopez. Dr. Lopez is Professor of Economics and the BB&T Distinguished Professor of Capitalism at Western Carolina University. He also oversees the BB&T Moral Foundations of Capitalism programs there. His recent book, Mad Men, Intellectuals, and Academic Scribblers from 2013 is going to be the topic of conversation today. Uh, Dr. Lopez, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Matt. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with the topic of your book for listeners who haven't read it. Um, the top, the name Mad Men, Intellectuals, and Academic Scribblers, where did that come from? Oh, that's a good question. We um, sort of stumbled into that um, elaborate title for our book as we did research on the way that economists throughout history have talked about um, how ideas have consequences. That's basically what our book is grappling with, how ideas have consequences. And when we noticed how economists talk about this problem throughout history, they tend to personify certain categories um, of human action that uh, are required in order for ideas to have consequences. And the long story short is that those categories fall under these headings of madmen on the one hand, intellectuals um, has another set of people in society, and then uh, uh, you have your academic scribblers as well. Awesome, and so these three categories of people come together for different forms of political entrepreneurship is what your book is arguing. Is that correct? Right. I think that's the sort of um, main, you know, big category is political entrepreneurship. And what we do is, you know, part of what we do is, you know, figure out different ways that political entrepreneurship presents itself, complementary ways oftentimes. Excellent. So, um, let's take a step back and what yeah. is this book um, looking at? What is it trying to understand and, and study? Well, you know, um, I think that the idea is called political change, at least in the parlance we use in the book. And what we mean by political change is when there are um, changes through the political process, typically through legislation, sometimes through regulation that alter the social rules of the game in some ways. And we're, we're, we're particularly interested in um, learning from those episodes that history shows the rules of the game were, were changed in beneficial ways. Beneficial in the sense, well, uh, they leaned toward uh, classical liberal priorities of uh, liberty and uh, definition and enforcement of economic rights to property and contract and so forth, but also beneficial in the sense that um, there were, it led to, you know, material measurable gains that we talk about in case studies and so forth. So um, really the, the, the question that preoccupies the book is trying to understand the conditions under which beneficial political change defined like that uh, can come about. Excellent. Um... Now, you use a specific term in there I want to clarify for listeners, and that's rules of the game. And I think mm-hmm. the way that you and your co-author, um, Wayne, use it comes from a, you know, a, a school of thought of public choice economics. Um, and what do you mean by rules of the game in this context? 
Oh, it's a great question. I think that, you know, if you look, if you take a step back and you say, how is economics useful? It would start with, you know, looking out the window and seeing a problem, seeing things that could be going better. That could be in the education system. That could be in the voting system. It could be something like, you know, um, vital organ transplants. And you see that there's a problem there and you say the outcome isn't what we you know, would like to see. It's not ideal. And so you say, how do you begin to understand what is driving that outcome? And, you know, economics comes into play and says, here's a structure of incentives around the key decision makers um, whose decisions add up to these outcomes that we observe. And we can uh, structure an analysis of those decision makers' incentives using this concept of rules of the game. And it's also known as institu institutional analysis. And so if you think about you know, the outcomes being determined by incentives and incentives in turn sort of being determined by institutions, what we wanna, uh, you know, institutions being those rules of the game that you're asking about, um, you know, what we want to do is understand when those institutions can change for the better. That brings us back to our question, how can political entrepreneurs put pressure on those institutions to change for the better? Um, that's kind of the front and center in our subject. Excellent. Um, so what is the quick summary for the answer to the question of your book? How does change happen in, in your view? Um, so think about... <clears throat> change happening from a particular status quo. A particular status quo could be any time at any place. It could be 2016 in North Carolina, or you know, it could be, uh, say, 1982, United States of America. And um, the idea is, are we going to continue with that status quo or not? You can kind of break it down in a, as a binary condition there, right? Um, and so, so then, the, then the question could be, well, um, uh, What's going to determine whether that binary condition is uh, one, yes, we're going to change, or you know, zero, we're going to continue with the status quo. And um, I think that there are basically two sets of forces um, each for the status quo and then some alternative that would be the change. One of those sets of forces is who are the folks who, are, who have vested interests in the way that the status quo is working? And then reinforcing them, who are the folks who are throwing ideas out there, communications out there, studies and so forth, um, you know, defending the status quo, saying that it, it actually is working well, um, versus on the other side, the same two kinds of groups, um, who might stand to gain from an alternative uh, to the status quo, and then who are the folks who are, you know, vaulting uh, ideas in support of that alternative, a, a pretty crystal example would be you know your your old uh, regime taxi medallion style regulation could be a status quo and you have the folks who own the medallions being the interests there and you have you know the politicians who are saying why we need that for public safety there um, th that would be the, the the forces protecting the status quo but they're going to be doing battle with you know, the, 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 the ride sharing companies who have a lot of profit to gain by entering the market. And then those advocates of free markets that are behind them saying, you know, this actually is a better way to do things. So the, the, the question comes down to, 
you know, which sets of those forces, the ones protecting the status quo or the ones fighting for the alternative are going to win. That's going to drive us into one of those binary categories or not. Cool. And so this topic of vested interests is so important, I think, to understanding, you know, how the world works, how politics works and, and how change is possible. Um, and earlier you talked about institutions at play and incentives that come from them. So what type of incentives do typical vested interests face and create within the political process? Oh, yeah, it's a good question. I think that, you know, one of the things we try to do is uh, lean heavily on public choice theory. And, uh, you know, one of the questions that we can look at with public choice theory is, well, why, why would we get um, – why would we get to any particular status quo that has these, you know, really bad features built into it where um, people are making these um, overinflated investments just for the right to, you know, provide a simple service um, or, you know, those other types of distortions in the marketplace that we can see. And, you know, how, how do we get here type of thing? And I think that public choice points to the sort of dynamic of, interest group and faction competition and um, the ultimate prevailers in, in that competition being the ones who have um, a, a comparative advantages in influencing um, the political process. And so uh, what you often see is that um, a, a political favor will go to groups that are successful in the political arena and that will increase their uh, economic gains for some for some period of time and that's um, you know ba the basic reason why we end up in a situation like that the second question would be well why don't we change and uh, I think the, the story just sort of continues from there these the interests that gain from that political favor being established through that economic policy being established they then sort of ossify around it and then they start to defend it and then, you know, they have a stake in the game. And that's why you see the, you know, taxi uh, cab drivers come out in protest of the ride sharing companies. And so there's that there's that tension there. There's that dynamic there. So when you ask about, you know, what are the incentives in play? I think that one of the things is if you decide to have this medallion regime, if you if you decide to change your political institutions that way, um, then you're you're going to set into motion these incentives among the people who gain the right to to to, to do rides, the, the people who buy those medallions, to uh, to then you know participate politically this way, and uh, you know arguably to the detriment of the the, the 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 society, the community as a whole. So that's I think how you tie in incentives with the institutions. So as we touched on earlier, the title comes from three categories of people who play an important role in the political system and political change, madmen, intellectuals, and academic scribblers. Could you go a little bit more into each of those three categories and what they look like and the roles they play? And feel free to take it in whatever order you think is best. Oh, sure. Yeah. Madmen comes from the closing passages of um, John Maynard Keynes's book. The general theory in 1936, and uh, basically what we're talking about is, uh, you know, he talks about madmen and authority uh, distilling from their frenzy the uh, academic scribblers uh, from a few years back, and uh, what he's getting at, at at there is that there are men of affairs, that there are uh, men of practice. That's the sort of old-time academic way of, of of talking about people who are implementers, 
and implementers include uh, what we think of as policymakers. And so, uh, you know, policymakers are going to um, be the folks, the madmen in authority. Think of them as they're the ones whose hands are on the levers of change. They're the ones ultimately who have to pull those levers um, for most of the things that we're talking about in political change. Um, and so, you know, heads of state and legislators and um, high-level bureaucrats and um, you know party uh, uh, bosses and things like that are all uh, sort of in that category. Uh, should I go on with the other two? Yeah, please do. Okay, so. Um, you know, again, going back to how economists have looked at this question, you know, the big question of how ideas have consequences, they sort of nest in these this level of um, implementers or madmen in authority, along with a couple other levels. And, you know, one of them is uh, you can think of as we can call it the intellectual class. And the intellectual class is folks that you see producing um, easily, easy to consume, uh, easy for large numbers of people in society to consume little nuggets of ideas about what's happening in life. And so that could be newspaper columns, that could be, um, you know, your, your, your preacher at the pulpit, it could be your school teachers, it could be uh, your novelists, your filmmakers, your cartoonists, all sorts of these sort of artistic mediums, but also mediums where they're communicating to people about, you know, what life is like. And so um, uh, F.A. Hayek, in a pretty famous essay in 1949 called The Intellectuals and Socialism, he talks about the intellectual class as having a political effect because, by and large, their bias is toward... Um, you know, centrally planned or, you know, socially managed types of solutions for society. And what they do is, whether they intend to or not, is they they kind of lean toward socialism in the both in the in, in the ideas that they choose to talk about, but also in the way that they package them for these mass audiences in whatever medium they 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 specialize in. So that's the intellectual class and it interacts with the madmen and authority. But, um, but, you know, both Hayek and Keynes are themselves academic scribblers. And so, you know, we have to account for that category, too. These are, you might think of these as sort of, uh, in some cases, like the originators of policy ideas. They're the abstract thinkers. They're the basic researchers, uh, your typical university academics. Uh, and then so those are the three categories. Cool. So we've got the academic scribblers who come up with ideas intellectuals who communicate and spread and filter these ideas and madmen who in theory implement them. Does that sound about right? That's a good, yeah, that's, that's right. That's a good starting point that, you know, it gets a little nuanced, but that's, that's fine. Yeah. That's a good start. Great starting point. So that, <laughs> so that explains for us like how things are and where they stand. Um, but like you said, your book is all about understanding change. And I really liked your guys's book because it introduced for me this concept of political entrepreneurship. So what does that mean? And could you compare and contrast it with standard entrepreneurship, business entrepreneurship in the market? Oh, yeah. I think that that's another um, sort of interesting, maybe like even entry point into the whole thing that we're doing. Um, because the idea of political entrepreneurship is, um, you know, it's, a, it's another sort of umbrella concept where we, we fit some things underneath it. 
basically political political entrepreneurship is when a person's work is having an effect on this dynamic of the status quo versus alternatives in particular the you know that that dynamic in the political arena in political institutions so i think that you know there's there's a couple different uh sets of folks that um you know that concept can speak to um you know we are uh we're, we're academics i'm an academic and i think that there's a there's a there's a a group of academics who are broadly speaking, you know, interested in the role of ideas in political economy and, um, you know, how ideas have consequences and, and, you know, stuff like in particular, like what types of mechanisms um, and uh, tend to be in place when ideas have consequences and what conditions make an idea a successful one versus one that doesn't survive. Questions like that to academics, you know, are sort of one way to think about political entrepreneurship because when academics are answering those questions, they're gonna be having an impact on uh, how um, political change unfolds later on. The other, but I think that, you know, outside of academia, I think that there's, uh, there's certainly no, there's certainly no, uh, not, not a large number of academics, I think, who would use the phrase political entrepreneurship in the sense that we mean, I, I don't, I don't think that's what we're going for necessarily, but I think that if, if, if they're, if the other academics who are interested in these questions see our framework that we've put together as something that they can use to build their theories and their models, um, some of that has been happening, and we've been in some you know good conversations with those. So, but I think that for 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 your listeners in the social change pod, podcast here, I think that you know the other two uh, categories, sort of in the real world of uh, in the real world. Um, I think of of political entrepreneurship applying to folks, um, sort of in two two groups. Like, say you're sort of in the game, in the game in the sense that you know your job, what you do for for, for your work, is somehow related to trying to put um, you know pressure on political institutions. You work for a think tank, or you're in the nonprofit world in some way. You do some uh, PR and development work for um, you know, a, a, a free market, uh, organization, um, you're kind of thinking about grad school, but you really also think of yourself as always wanting to have a hand in what's actually happening, you know, real world types of things. You, you, you don't know where it's going to go, but you kind of think that if you could have a good career and, um, you know, um, contribute to, uh, there being, you know, more freedom in the world through the political process, then you know you're you're hoping that the the fruits of your work exerts this beneficial change on political institutions. You're hoping that the effect of it is to be a political entrepreneur. Um, so I think that's another way to grab a hold of the concept. Um, if that, I'll just you know quickly mention the other sort of you don't have to sort of be consciously into it. Um, in that game, as I mentioned, you know, you could be somebody who is um, um, running a, um, you know, thinking about a startup and, you know, the service that you're going to provide with your startup might not exactly have a clear cut space in the regulatory apparatus, you know, and you might find that the product that you are developing has high demand, but that the, you know, the legal space for it isn't quite there yet. 
you're going to be having this incidental effect on political institutions. You're going to be having this, you know, this dynamic effect of, you know, let's have the regulatory framework be flexible when buyers and sellers get together and figure out how to create value for each other, you know, and so you don't, you didn't set out to, to be an agent of political change, but um, your work is having that effect. And I think that that's where it all sort of comes down together for us back to back down to, you know, number one, we want to provide academics a way to understand political change. And number two, we want to provide everybody else a, a, a framework for thinking about how they can be good agents of change. So this third bucket is very interesting to me because it's come up a couple of times on this podcast already of this debate about the role um, entrepreneurs and particularly emerging markets can play in driving change. And some people contend that, at least from the classical liberal libertarian perspective, you should actually disregard or place on a low priority work within the political system. Someone trying to change policy or put pressure on politicians and spend a lot more of your energy in driving new entrepreneurship that will outpace government regulation. Um, do you have a take on that or have you looked into that at all? Oh, I'm highly sympathetic to that. Mostly, though, um, as a matter of fit with what a person really wants to do, um, less uh, on the, the idea that, you know, trying to get involved with more more overtly political types of work is, you know, that is sort of less, you know, more pointless or something. I do think it is true. We should probably talk about Hayek a little bit on this, um, especially with reference to a, a, a pamphlet, a, a booklet um, by John Blundell at the IEA in London called Waging the War on Ideas. And he talks about there in the in that book, Blundell, Blundell does about how Hayek would say, you know, stay out of politics. It's it's predetermined. And, you know, that just goes back to his sort of theory about intellectuals and and so forth. But uh, but, you know, the, the idea was uh, stick to ideas, you know, stick to classical liberal ideas and, and have your impact that way. So Hayek was definitely expressing, you know, a, a preference there. And I think that there's some wisdom to that. Um, if you uh, if you look around sometimes at, at how politics unfolds and you think that, that you can make a difference at that level, sometimes it leads you to scratch your head a little bit, maybe. But, um, you know, I think that if you if you take that view, you know, Hayek's view and say, oh, politics is predetermined. Um, you know, I think that that sort of that gives a little bit more reinforcement to how you phrase the question, which is somebody who says, you know, um, uh, get, get out there and uh, engage in the in the in the world where it really matters and makes a difference. Uh, you know, kind of innovate in the in the marketplace, uh, innovate uh, new products and services and apps and um, ways of connecting people. Uh, and you know, if that has the impact of altering the regulatory landscape. Um, yeah, you know, that's a side benefit to that person. But uh, you know, I think that it, I would support that route for somebody for whom that's a, that's their fit and that's what they want to do. I would also support you know the regular old think tank route and somebody who you know makes a a, a nice uh, going of it that way. Um, again, more as a matter of fit. It's good that we have that ecosystem of options. 
So we've touched on the different forms that political entrepreneurship can take, but do you have an example or two you could share for us to help crystallize this concept and what it looks like in practice? Oh, okay. So let's see. I think it would make sense if we talked about something that most people at least have, you know, some awareness of and maybe care about too. Probably a good candidate there is um, kidneys and uh, vital organ transplants. Um, you know, so you know the basic set uh, setup with the situation with the problem here, right? Uh, clarified for us. So you know the the idea here is that we have um, many people who are in need of a vital organ for transplant. Let's talk about kidneys, um, although it does apply to other organs like livers and um, hearts and so forth. But uh, um, the number of donors available is um, far outstripped by the number of um, needing needing, uh, recipients. And so there's a, a shortage. And if you go to the United Network for Organ uh, sharing website, you know, they keep track of the exact number of, the, of this list of how big this shortage is and break it down by organs. And, you know, if you start to dig deeper into the analysis of what's going on, what you find is that, you know, everybody who looks at this talks about it in terms of supply and demand. They break down the factors that are, you know, responsible for the supply. They break down the factors that are responsible for the demand. And they say, you know, these are the reasons why the Um, demand is bigger than the supply and you know one of the things that they always have to uh, have in there regardless is um, what the federal law says on this which is you can't pay donors Um, they can't receive meaningful consideration what the law says and so um, you know that's uh, like again if you come back to how economics can be useful to to people it is by you know looking out the window like this uh, seeing a problem, um, you know, people are on wait lists for vital organ transplant. They are remaining ill. Uh, they're getting worse. Many are dying. They do keep track of the number of deaths waiting um, as well. And um, you know, with with uh, with the notion that well, if you allowed for donors to be paid. If you allowed for meaningful consideration instead of what the law does now, which is ban meaningful consideration, that would you know alleviate the shortage, and we wouldn't have this uh, you know uh, misery and death on our hands. And so you know that's the the main tension, and it's 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 analyzed in terms of supply and demand. Um, it has these broader moral and ethical uh, issues that are wrapped up in it. But it's also, you know, uh, it's a real problem that a lot of people have looked at. And I think that what our framework does is it shows how the different folks who are looking at it in different ways sort of fit in as each being political entrepreneurs in their respective ways. So um, think about folks who are engaging with this argument um, that, well, we can't have the law allow people to be paid as um, organ donors because that's going to commodify the human body. And, you know, this is, this is an argument that gets wrapped up in with, with ethics and morality and theology. And, you know, it, it's, it's held at a relatively abstract level 
by, you know, when it's done professionally by philosophers and ethicists. And, um, you know, but, but they're having an impact on the way that we understand this problem. Um, at another level, you would have somebody like Alvin Roth, economist who uh, won the Nobel Prize recently for his work on something called the paired kidney exchange, which is a very cool concept if you look it up. Um, but it's, it's basically a mechanism to, to harness some of the um, willing donors that show up under the current regime, even though they're not able to be compensated, they show up, but they're not matches. And so Alvin Roth's work is very technical, very um, elaborate, uh, you know, theory, but it has these um, uh, implications of trying to pair people up even when they weren't a match with somebody else. Um, and so that's another level that uh, could be what, what has been that people have been looking at this problem. Just kind of continuing on a couple more, a very interesting economist named Gary Becker, also a Nobel Prize winning economist, passed away a couple of years ago, um, but a, a, after a shining career. And one of the papers that he wrote uh, relatively recently looks at um, what price would donors um, you know, suffice for donors to uh, increase the supply of kidneys to completely alleviate the current shortage. And using some um, literature on um, forensic economics that looks at the uh, value of life studies and you know, risk analyses and so forth, um, you know, Becker's able to come up with a figure of about I think it's fifteen thousand dollars, and so he's he's contributing to the understanding by saying, "Look, if if we did open it up, something like fifteen thousand dollars, you know, something like the value, the, uh, the the market price anyway of like a used car, um, would solve the you know the situation, and you know that might not change everybody's mind right away, but it's a it's a it's a piece that sort of contributes along the way with these other ones, and then meanwhile you also have people like Alex Tabarrok." at George Mason University, you know, devising incentive compatible uh, mechanisms that can work. So for example, you know, if you, if you do mark that you're a donor, then, you know, you get on the list um, as a recipient if you ever need to be. And then, you know, finally you have folks like, um, I believe it's uh, Tina Rosenberg at the New York Times, who is a journalist who, you know, goes and looks and actually um, spends time on the ground and talks to everybody she can and writes a couple of very compelling and interesting articles about the, what the legal market looks like in Iran and, you know, comes away with some really unexpected uh, findings, um, goes into it thinking, for example, that, you know, paying for kidneys is, was going to be exploitative necessarily, but, you know, came out of it on the other side after all that research and, and writing thinking the exact opposite, you know, that the that the non-paying regime actually is the exploitative one and so forth and so on. And, and, and so I guess what I'm getting at here by looking at all of these different ways and different levels that people are contributing to this issue, we have, um, you know, sort of reinforcing and complementary um, modes of political entrepreneurship going on uh, and it's political entrepreneurship because ultimately I think the idea is we would like to have Congress look at this law that you know does among other things um, 
you know, prevents um, donors from getting paid. And so that's the connection, again, down to political uh, change. Great. Pretty fascinating subject, the whole, the whole kidneys and vital organs uh, thing. I talk about it in my classes a lot, and we draw the supply graphs, what it would look like you know, with paying and without paying, and we kind of geek out over it, and it's a, it's a fun issue. I think it's something that maybe a lot of folks uh, have heard about uh, before. I think things, are, things sound like they're changing on it, too. I don't know. Have you heard about any, like, voter attitudes or um, polls or anything, maybe among millennials, how they feel about maybe we should pay donors? Any, um, anything changing? I haven't heard a whole lot about it. I don't know how much attention there is on it, but I know one activism idea that um, some college activists have worked with is asking people, you know, what they're okay with buying and selling being applied to. And that's the kind of example they would use to ask people, you know, are you okay with buying and selling um, a ride in a taxi? Everyone seems to be. Are you okay with buying and selling um, organs? And a lot of times the gut reaction is no. And then trying to have a discussion about why or why not. Um, I know also Peter Jaworski um, has been doing some work on this um, and trying to draw attention to it. But unfortunately, I haven't heard right. a whole lot of traction to it um, recently. I, d I definitely hear it's a great example and something that I personally would like to see move in the direction of change for sure to get that market moving and, and more you know, um, uh, liquidity in it and getting more people access to the organs. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a fascinating thing. You're right. You're, you're, you're right. It probably doesn't get a lot of attention, but I think when people stop to think about it, they say, hmm, okay. Um, and it looks like attitudes, uh, at least I hear people say that, the attitudes are changing on it. So, uh. so, so taking a step back again, what advice do you and Wayne offer in your book to aspiring change makers? Well, I think that, um, you know, we're, we, we do kind of get into a little bit of um, a lessons learned type of uh mode at the end of the book yeah i think the last and, chapter is called uh, the way forward or something along those lines yeah so um uh i i think that we have some basic uh principles that we try to lay out there and you know one is basically just you know know what your comparative advantage is and you know what it, what what does that mean well i mean it it means what what are your what are the things that you add that um are of higher value or that you can do at, uh, you know, uh, at lower cost, where's your comparative advantage in this whole. And I think that a lot of that comes down to, comes down to, you know, what are you really interested in? Because when you have a good handle on what you're really interested in, then you're going to be, you know, tend to be, um, find yourself getting good at that. And, you know, if that means, um, helping to uh, organize an event and making sure that everything goes on schedule and that the meals are right and you like interacting with um, with folks uh, in that type of setting um, you can you know feel like you're contributing that to an organization that's um, you know out there fighting for um, you know deregulating occupational licensure of uh, <laughs> of hair braiders yeah. and equine massagers right like the institute for justice for example and uh, you know that can be that can be something that is really fulfilling to you but if that's not your cup of tea then you know you might find yourself saying well i want to go to 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 grad school only to get a master's to learn how to code and I want to get into, you know, big data analysis and go work for a political consultancy, you know, that that's a totally, you know, uh, 
we have we have a we have an ecosystem of opportunities to sustain basically whatever you would like to go into, whatever you would like to develop as your comparative advantage by following what you're interested in. So outside of actually being a political entrepreneur and being a change maker, for those who want to do something similar to what you did in writing this book and studying it as a scholar, um, what opportunities do you see out there for further research into this field of understanding political change? Yeah, I think for researchers, you know, we have, I think that you might, you might start by going to our blog at politicalentrepreneurs.com and, um, slowly I'm getting, uh, additional authors contributing to our blog. And, you know, we, we, I think that one area where we've seen some impact in the, in the literature is on this question of, you know, how ideas and interests grapple over, prevailing institutional arrangements. Okay. That's maybe a mouthful there, but it kind of goes back to, you know, what is, what's the main question that we're, that we're after. And that question is, you know, does political change happen? And, you know, we're understanding political change as being, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to alter the, the, the institutional rules. And so, uh, when we're altering those institutional rules, you know, uh, how do we account for, how do we explain, how do we model the tensions between ideas and interests over those institutional rules? We've seen some some traction in the literature on that specific point. Um, an economist named Danny Roderick published a paper in the Journal of Economics Perspectives on that point. And um, I think that, you know, our, our book also has been, uh, has been um, talked about in the literature we're picking up the, the the agenda ourselves through um, some additional work. We're looking at doing some case studies. I think because you know some empirical um, uh, you know verification, if you will, I don't know um, narratives to go along with what we're saying um, to sort of just illustrate how our framework can, is useful and can be done by other scholars. Um, we have a, you know, a whole list of case study topics, um, anything from, you know, how you know, deregulation happened in the 70s to, you know, how, um, you know, how the changes in the, in the 2010s have been happening with respect to uh, property rights at, uh, at civil forfeiture laws and um, all sorts of things that could be done as case studies in political change. And so I think those are a couple of different ways we can engage academics and that academics are engaging with us. So this is the last question I wanted to ask you, and it's uh, a question I'm interested in as someone who really enjoyed your book. Um, since you've written it and it was published, have you had additional thoughts or insights on this topic that, like you said, you might be putting into some kind of case study or further work on the topic? I think so. I think that what we um, what we probably did a little bit uh, too much in the book that we realize in retrospect um, uh, is how we treated the uh, concept of crisis and how we treated you know crisis as you know that that condition for for change. That goes back to Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman in 1962 wrote his Capitalism and Freedom book. And, you know, he proposed, he was definitely being a, a political entrepreneur in that book. He proposed a number of 
reforms, um, you know, they would move in the market direction, and many of them ended up happening. And 20 years later, when he wrote uh, the the preface to the 20th anniversary edition of Capitalism and Freedom, he uh, reflected on some of the successes, some of the recommendations that he made that actually got implemented. And he um, w- uh, has this famous passage there where he says, you know, any meaningful uh, reform ha- has to happen during a period of crisis. And so one thing we did in the book was we used that as kind of a foil and we said, well, actually it has to be more than a crisis. You know, we, if we break it down, we see lots of episodes of political change that weren't predated or surrounded by a crisis period. And we also have seen lots of crisis periods comes along that doesn't have any political change. So, you know, uh, but that comes down as being, you know, neither necessary nor sufficient. What else is going on? And then we start to peel that problem apart. But the point I'm getting at now is in the book, we kind of gave it a little bit short shrift. And I think later on what we did was we went back to Friedman and we realized he was talking about all of the things that we end up talking about in our framework, the finished framework later in the book. You know, he was talking about changes in the climate of ideas. He was talking about successes at, you know, um, the, 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 um, the level of convincing the economics profession. He was, uh, he was very much aware that, you know, there was this tyranny of the status quo. That's a, a phrase he uses that we didn't pick up on. Um, before the book, but we we probably should have, and and I think that um, if I could, you know, just leave readers with, uh, leave your listeners with, with one takeaway is, um, well, go to go to our uh, Amazon page and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you on the book on Amazon, but also go back to this Milton Friedman uh, introduction to um, the the Capitalism and Freedom book, and it's a, it's a it's a quick read, but it's also really sort of dense with the things that we're getting at, how ideas have consequences, that not just the ideas of the experts coming from the top down and saying, you know, how public policy would be the most efficient, but also the ideas of the masses sort of bubbling up and forming as public opinion and coming in as a constraint on what policymakers can do and what they're expected to do. And so this kind of combination of top down and bottom up, you'll get it from that Friedman introduction. And um, if you if you really want to drill into it, you can come to the come to our book and come to our blog and and get some more of it there. I definitely want to echo your message there Um, to listeners. I highly recommend Mad Men, Intellectuals and Academic Scribblers. One of the best books I've read about political change was a lot of uh, useful tips on actually carrying this out. Um, So I think you said you can check it out on Amazon. Also, the website politicalentrepreneurs.com. And I think you mentioned that the Chinese translation is now available. Is that correct? That's right. Uh, China Financial Publishing House uh, just released the Chinese translation in May. So that was a big event for us too. Hey, congratulations. That's fantastic. Thanks very much. I was really pleased to, do, to see that. Excellent. Um, well, to listeners, thank you for tuning in. Remember to follow us at socialchangepodcast.com on Facebook at facebook.com slash socialchangepodcast and on Twitter at the handle at socialchangepod. Ed, thanks for coming on. Take care. Excellent. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.